Welcome to the Christian Renewal Church Sunday Sermon. We hope you enjoyed this message. For more information about this podcast and other resources, visit ChristianRenewalHHI.org. She said Franklin uh, Roosevelt was looking at me, nodding his head, and I thought following my report, but suddenly he interrupted me uh, and he said this. He said, Francis, have you ever read Kierkegaard? Uh, very little, she said. Mostly reviews of his writings. She said, well, you, he said, well, you ought to read him, he said with enthusiasm. It'll teach you something. She says, I thought perhaps it would teach me something about the War Labor Board. And then he says, it will teach you about the Nazis, he said. Kierkegaard explains the Nazis to me as nothing else ever has. I've never been, I've never been able to make out why people who are obviously human beings could act like that. They're human, yet they behave like demons. Kierkegaard gives you an understanding of what it is that makes man, uh, makes it possible for these Germans to be so evil. He said, this fellow Johnson over at St. John's knows all about Kierkegaard and his theories. You better read them. History says that um, Franklin Roosevelt had this young minister, Howard A. Johnson was his name, um, to dinner. And he was asking him questions about the philosophy of Kierkegaard. Kierkegaard was an 18th century philosopher. He was um, the first existentialist. Um, and he mainly talked about what it is to have being. But in his discussions, he talked a lot about depravity. He was a Christian, and he talked about um, total depravity, what it means for human race to be um, fallen. And so what you have is Franklin Roosevelt trying to process and understand what's happening in World War II. How could these Nazis be so evil? And in processing, he invites a young minister named Howard A. Johnson to dinner. And, and history says that the entire dinner, he's asking Johnson questions and taking notes. It says that he keeps him all night. And then he says to one of his assistants later, he says, Kierkegaard would help you understand what's going on here. Roosevelt was examining his worldview. He was trying to find he was trying to find answers to world problems, and he finds answers in a Christian uh, philosopher, theologian, um, Soren Kierkegaard, in, in the uh, late 19th century. Kierkegaard argued for original sin in Adam that man itself manifests itself in our daily lives. So Kierkegaard argued for what biblical. Um, orthodoxy has always said um, what we call the federal headship of Adam, that in one man we all fell. So Kierkegaard argued for we, uh, we are all fallen in Adam, but he also argued for rightly um, the fact that we all kind of replay Adam. So it's not just that we're guilty in the, in the fact that we are a member of the human race, but we're also experientially guilty. That there's not a person, Kierkegaard would argue, that was not deprave in their heart, that outside of Christ, of course, that every person bears out, they flesh out evil. Think of Jeremiah's words. How do we come from perfection and eat into Jeremiah's words saying that the heart is desperately wicked? Who can trust it? Or Romans chapter 3 saying, um, what then? Are, are we Jews any better off? Paul saying, are we Jews any better off? And he says, no, not at all. For we have, we've already charged that both Jews and Greeks are under sin. And it is written, none is righteous. No, no one. No, not one. No one seeks God. None is righteous. No one seeks God. This is foundational to our worldview that we are broken, innately broken in and of ourselves. We are so broken that we, we, we don't have a solution. We have no solutions to this problem. Malcolm uh, Muggeridge, a Brit- British journalist, um, he said this. He says, the pra- depravity of man is one of the most empirically verifiable uh, facts, but at the same time, the most intellectually resisted. 
I was, I had a discussion with a young guy one day about the gospel and we were talking about the gospel and I got to the point of we're all sinners. We've all fallen. And he stopped me and he said, you don't really believe that, do you? You don't really believe that every person that walks the earth is, is a sinner. And I, it put me on my heels for a second and I stopped and asked the guy exactly what Malcolm Muggeridge is arguing. I said, like, walk me through your family members. You got one who's not evil. You got one who's never sinned. Let's just do like a lie. Can you give me one person you know of that's never lied? And that's what Malcolm Muggeridge is arguing, that the depravity of man is empirically verifiable. That means you can test it. Put the scientific method on that thing. Line people up. Interview them one by one. You come to the conclusion, without a doubt, that we have all lied. We have all fallen short. We are all broken. Profoundly broken at that. So Christian orthodoxy has always taught um, original sin, that in Adam we all fell, and the experiential fact that we all reproduce that sin. Um, and typically the doctrine is called total depravity. Uh, total depravity is the T to the reform to the Calvinistic system of TULIP, um, total depravity, unconditional election, limited atonement, irresistible grace, and the perseverance of the saint. That's the reform system. But but Arminians and and Orthodox Christianity has always believed some form of total depravity. We're not Pelagian. Just for a second, I'm just give you a little history for a second. Um, Augustine's greatest debate was over original sin with Pelagius, who was another philosopher. Philosopher, there's no T in that word. Um, and the argument was about whether man can be holy in and of themselves. And Augustine just reamed, like was so frustrated with the idea that man can be holy outside of God because to get rid of the problem of original sin is to get rid of the need of the gospel. And, and what we don't believe about total depravity, total depravity does not mean, in my view, that, you, that people outside of Christ are as evil as they could be. It doesn't mean that they don't have flashes of good or moments of goodness. Total depravity to me is um, what's sometimes referred to as a, as a privation, a, a lack. Total depravity, um, think of it this way. Um, darkness is not a substance. Darkness is the absence of light. I'm suggesting that the sin nature was not, not a gift that God gave us when we fall. He didn't say, now we're going to give everybody the gift of sin nature. That's not what happened. We, it's not about what we gained at the fall. It's what we lost. At the fall, we lost our ability to live holy. So I'm saying that like depression is a lack of joy. Anxiety is a lack of peace. And fear is a lack of confidence. So in that sense, again, to fall back on what we talked about last week, evil is rebellion against God, but it's not a substance. And so at the fall, we, it's not that we gained anything, we lost everything. So two weeks ago, we discussed the nature of creation as good. Remember, we talked about matter not being evil in and of itself, and God saying uh, he created everything and said, it's good, it's good, it's good. And so creation is not the source of evil. And last week, we talked about the fact that, that, that Satan is a manipulator. He's not omnipotent, he's not omnipresent, and he's not omniscient. He is not in control. So we cannot point the finger at matter and say, matter, you're evil. I'm just stuck in this evil body, so I'm doing evil. And you can't point your finger at Satan and say, no, he made me do it because he's not in control. The, the, the answer scripturally here is that the problem is not matter and it's 
even in the satanic realm. The problem is in you. The problem is in us. We are, we are the broken. And so for all of history, we're pointing our fingers at something, trying to say, this is the issue. Poverty's the issue, or racism's the issue. And those are all fruits of the fact that we are the issue. Rich or poor, middle class, we are broken. And the, the problem with our misdiagnosis of evil or sin is that when you misdiagnose something, you bring a false solution. So like, um, I don't, I don't need flu tone when I have cancer. If, if you put the, if you put the ultimate origin of evil as poverty today, then you'll say that economic equality is the answer to evil, not realizing that, that Jesus is the answer to evil. We're plagued with sin, guilty, depraved. The solution to this epidemic is Christ and Christ alone. The only thing we quoted earlier, the only thing that could cause your hard heart to be born again, to become flesh, is a receiving of Jesus Christ and the infilling of the Holy Ghost. The, the only thing that can cause us to produce good works, Jesus said, is that if we abide in him. And then Paul will say, the fruit of the Holy Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience. The fruit of the Holy Spirit is produced when your roots are tapped into the nutrients of the Holy Ghost. It cannot be produced outside of that. So Jesus says, you can do nothing outside of me. That is a perfect pronunciation of what we are in the fall. Able to produce nothing good. Because it's only in being rooted, grounded, and plugged into the person of the Holy Spirit through the goodness of God that I can produce good works. And the epidemic, like the horrible news of the fall, is that we were driven from God's presence. And therefore, so I'm saying that at the very basis, without really getting into all the issues of total depravity, all the nuances, at the very basis, we are outside of the presence of God, unable to produce good works, and we cannot fix the issue ourselves. Totally depraved. So let's read the text. Genesis chapter 3, verses 6 to 13. So when the woman saw the tree was good for food, that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. She also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked. They sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. Then they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord among the trees of the garden. But the Lord called to man and said to him, Where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. He said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, the woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me the fruit of the tree and I ate. And the Lord God said to the woman, what is it that you have done? And then the woman says that the serpent has deceived me. You follow that pattern? The woman who you gave me, she gave the tree. And then, then the woman, what did you do? The, the serpent gave me. The first thing that's profound that happens here in this text is that for the first time in the history of man, guilt is introduced. And I am suggesting that guilt is devastating, that it eases its way into their conscience and it seeps its way down into their identity. And the way that they perceive themselves, the way that they interact with one another is all now tainted, like profoundly and utterly tainted by the fact that they are aware that they're guilty. 
Guilt speaks before spoken to. It whispers in the quiet. It plagues our dreams. It poisons our hopes and aspirations. I dream, I still to this day dream at night of the things that I've done in the past life. I still have like, like borderline nightmares of mistakes that I've made. Guilt haunts. For the first time, man and woman felt anxiety. Can you imagine never have, never, never having experienced the way that your adrenaline starts to run and your mind starts to run and the fear that like rushes our veins. You know, when anxiety, you, you feel different. You feel nervous, man, really nervous for the first time we're experiencing anxiety. And, flo- and, and, and guilt begins to, 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 to stain our perspective, to stain our lens in the way that we see our life. It, it's Listen to me for a second. It's why Romans 8 verses 1 is, is so profound when Jesus or when Paul says, um, there is now therefore no condemnation for you in Christ Jesus. It's profound because there was condemnation. This, this verse is not talking about the false accusation of the enemy. Sometimes we refer to when the enemy accuses you falsely, we refer to that as condemnation. This condemnation is legitimate. We were legitimately guilty. We were utterly helpless. The wrath of God was aimed at us. And so when Paul says, there is now, therefore, no condemnation for you, that's a profound statement, man. That's talking about my identity, who I am. I no longer have to look myself in the mirror and say, you're guilty. I hear no, you, no condemnation. That's a legitimate condemnation. That's not the accusation of the enemy that Paul's speaking of. The statement's profound because condemnation is all we've known. Guilt is pattern producing. And this is what I really want to get into here is because there's this moment where guilt seeps in. There's this moment of rebellion, this moment of rejecting God that takes place. And then there's a pattern that starts to flesh out. Like immediately they start trying to cover themselves, hide, make excuses. These things start to flow out of guilt. It's pattern producing. And so the first thing is this. To cope with guilt uh, the first thing they try is to sew fig leaves together to cover themselves. They try. Do you understand that the, me- the meaning of atonement is to, to cover? Uh, atonement means that your sins are covered. This is a, this is a historical picture. We, we believe and I believe and this church believes that Genesis is a historical account. Jesus speaks of Adam and Eve as if they are historical figures in, in the narrative. But this, this story, it's also... Um, Sorry, I'm still going through puberty. I'm really working on it. Um, it's hard. I got, <laughs> my face is breaking out. And I, I said, I'm, you know, I'm still working through it. Um, but this story is not only historic, it's prophetic. It's, it's, it's not just allegory, but it is prophetic in that it's retold throughout history. That we all can identify with it. That when we read the story, it's really easy to read yourself in. And so while I am clinging to the fact that this is a historical account. There's also prophetic imagery that's taking place. And so the idea of salvation by works is that you can atone for, you can, you can provide your own atonement through, through working. And so this is a picture we're getting right away. If, can you imagine Adam and Eve sitting down with some fig leaves and trying to, trying to sew this thing together frantically, trying to produce something that would cause God's eyes not to catch a glimpse at their nakedness, but maybe I could cover myself if we would 
frantically work and, make, and build something here. And so it's works. It's, it's works coming to play immediately with guilt. We start trying to, we start trying to cover ourselves. Not willing to look yourself in the mirror. It's hard enough for me to look at my own guilt. Much less I don't want anyone else to see it. And so we, we constantly try to cover. And this is an attempt to atone. You try to appease your own conscience. And so we get into the scale game, right? Like if I, whatever, if I give money to the poor, then I'm a good person. I'm just going to ignore the fact that I'm stealing on the side. I'm going to ignore the fact that, I'm, that, that lying is a legitimate problem or that pornography is a legitimate problem. And we try to cover. I'll produce something good to put over my guilt, and I'll wear it out so no one can see who I really am. So we try to appease our conscience. We try to, we, we try to facade people around us. That's, that's the root of hypocrisy, that you try to, Make yourself out to look like you're this good, righteous person. And, and when you go home, you live in your secret sin. It's hypocrisy. God hates it, number one. Um, number two, it's, it's self-righteousness that actually divides us. Do you realize that when you walk around pretending like you've got it all together and that you've, you, you are not guilty, that you're somehow the spiritually moral, moral elite, all you've done is push everyone else, everyone else down. You've created an atmosphere in which people can't be honest about their problems and you've birthed division. Why? Because you're embarrassed of what you've really struggled with. Because you want to be honest about what's going on here. You birth the vision because you don't go to God and plead for his forgiveness, for his atonement. You're actually you're trying to sew something together yourself. It's divisive. And you try, and with works is an attempt to shift God's eyes from our failure. It's an attempt to facade. Did you ever, um, did you ever get, like, get in a fight at school growing up? And when your parents come home and you know you're about to get it, right? But then you, but you do all your homework. You know what I'm talking about? You mop a little bit, make dinner. I, I did it. I'm trying to, you're trying to facade. You're trying to get around the fact. But listen to me. We, in our court systems today, just hear me for a second. I know y'all like Caleb, Jack, and yeah, yeah, yeah. If you, let's make a situation here. If you rob a bank and you stand before a judge, and you go to testify, you want to do your own, and then you start saying, Judge, I helped my neighbor with her groceries. I am very nice to my grandparents. I, whatever, I cut my grandma's grass. You, that doesn't change the fact that you robbed a bank. If we expect our justice system to be just, how much more is God just? And so we try to facade, we try to cover, as if you can actually manipulate and fool God. So they try the works thing, and then the next thing they try is to hide. Do you guys realize how, forgive me for saying stupid, but do you realize how stupid that is? Like God created the heavens and the earth. He just spoken into being. Let's try to hide behind a tree. And this is really what's profoundly devastating. Is that rather than looking God in the eye and saying, God, I messed up. 
Rather than owning it and asking for mercy, what we get is trying to cover and then we'll try to hide. We'll try to get away from God. And this, this really is the scariest verse of all of scripture that man tries to hide from God because, because remember we talked about that Jesus says in John 15, the only way you can produce anything of good fruit of good standing, the only way you can do anything of, of, of righteousness is if you stay plugged into me. But now we mess up and rather than just own it, we try to hide, we try to run and we're trying to stall. We're profoundly aware of his justice nature. Romans 1 says that we're all aware of his attributes. And, and what happens here that, um, what happens here that, 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 that is devastating for lack of a better word, um, is that rather than having a loving reverence for God, let me say it this way. Um, this isn't a political statement at all. I have a, a, a loving reverence for police officers. There's, there's a reverence there. I'm not, a, I'm not afraid of police officers until I'm driving 10 over without a seatbelt on. And then your presence isn't welcome. I'm praying in tongues that you don't pull me over. There's a, there's a shift that broke in Adam and Eve when they left a loving reverence for their father and they began to operate by fear of his justice. It, it drives a wedge. It drives a gap. And now, rather than plugging into God's presence and living in shalom, man, that, that Hebrew word means perfect peace. They had perfect peace in God. They're now driven away and hiding from God's justice. And ultimately, we all know, uh, again, Romans 1, we, we, every, every man and woman has a, according to Romans 1, has a certain knowledge of the truth, but, but we try to suppress that knowledge, and so we try to live with that knowledge away, but, but, and not that this is the perfect example, but that old thing is that when, when you get on deathbed, all of a sudden you want to pray because the, the knowledge of God starts to pop up. And we all know that God's just. Like, we get that. God is just. And we all get that we are profoundly broken. And so we live on borrowed time and hope to avoid church, plug our ears at the gospel. We live in blindness because we don't want to accept the fact that we deserve punishment. Not realizing that in our attempts to, so many of us are attempting to hide from God, like we know that we're guilty, so we just kind of try to stay away from church, stay away from those people, and I'm just going to ride this thing till the wheels fall off, man. I'm going to live how I want to live and enjoy it, and we think we're getting away on borrowed time, not realizing that God is patient towards you, wishing that you would reach repentance. It's in this broken fellowship with God, that we lose communion, that we lose real life. Remember we talked about John chapter 1, that in Jesus life was. Jesus is the, the life, the truth. He is the possessor of real life. And outside of him, you only possess some kind of void that is is constantly decaying. It's only in Jesus that you have life. And the tragedy of the fall is that we lost that communion. And then, so, so first they work, and I'm going to try to cover this thing. Then when they realize that they can't cover it, we're going to try to hide. We're going to try to just 
put a distance between God. Maybe we'll have some time, man, before he catches up with us. And then when God catches them, they start doing the blame thing, which is really funny. I like to do that. Me and my wife, we have an argument about once a year. Um, and that's, that's whatever. That's not because we're like super spiritual. It's because I don't care enough to argue. Um, I'm like, whatever, dude. Um, so last night, we, it wasn't an argument, but we had a little disagreement, and we were both blame shifting. No, you, no, you said, and then she said, no, you said. And let me tell you, I was right, like utterly right. And I can say that because she's not in the room right now. Um, but it's funny, like how, you, you know what I'm talking about? When you get into a discussion and you're, you're no, you, you, you're trying to hold somebody else accountable. But if you were honest for 10 minutes and looked at there's some, you, you got a little guilt in there too. But it makes you feel better to push it on someone else. And so... What we get in Gethsemane is now we have broken communion with God. We have a false gospel trying to play. And then we have broken fellowship with man. And so now, rather than Adam saying of Eve, this is bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh, he's saying to God, no, this woman that you gave me, she made me do this. And the woman says, no, no, it was Satan. He made me do this. And we're shifting blame. And our fellowship is profoundly broken. We're divisive, we are unwilling to own responsibility, and we are self-serving. And to tie this point to the, to the first one, is that even many times, we may realize that we have a neighbor who's in need. Say you have a neighbor who's sick, and so you go, we go, and we make a meal, and we bring a neighbor, a meal, and we pat ourselves on the back and we feel better because now we're a good person. And I think in, in God's eyes, we may actually be self-serving. Although the act itself was good, the motivation of the act was actually that you would feel better about who you are. And so you're not serving your neighbor out of genuine love and care for who they are. You're using them as if they're a pawn so that you can pat yourself on the back. And now God says that your righteousness is filthy before me. We're self-serving. And, and, and it's so hard to communicate these facts because, because sin, it's, it's sin is so deep, man. Like it, deep in us. Our hearts are hard. Scripture says our eyes are blind. We can't see correctly. And we're constantly doing the self-preserving thing, all the while continuing to drive wedges between communion and family. And ultimately, what we get after the fall is we get God, um, you know, with the list of the serpent will live on its belly. The woman will feel pain in childbirth and the man, he'll he'll work, but he'll now he'll work by his sweat and he'll work by he'll have to toil to produce fruit from the land. And ultimately, what we get is this kind of reordering of creation when we rejected shalom we rejected god when we walked out on his perfect peace and presence now we exist in a creation that the very fabric is broken and so now we have sickness disease anxiety loneliness fear earthquakes devastation famine all of these things we live in a profoundly broken world and our response to that is to constantly be saying no the world is broken because we are broken 
And, and, and Romans chapter 8 says that, said that the world is subject, subjected to futility by him who subjected it in hopes that it would come to a place of redemption. And so now we had dominion over the world, and with our dominion we subjected the world um, to futility. It's broken. It's utterly devastated. The unwinding of physical creation. So my task today was to talk about worldview. And, and, and this is a worldview subject because, for instance, this is just a for instance. So again, I'm not making political statements. I'm using examples. For instance, we have a new fresh wave of millennials who are crying for some form of communism. And the, the heart of that is that, that there are segregated class systems and poverty that are causing people to act evil. And so we'll spread out the wealth and we'll, we'll try to, we'll try to, to even the playing field and then and then no one will be evil anymore and the problem is is that the, the the our worldview says that whether people are wealthy or poor they're broken and they're evil and we don't want to put and that, that's actually not to go down this rabbit trail but that's so much why in our democracy we're into accountability we're into multiple people we're into heads we're not into having one person who gets to make all the decisions it's not why we're not for monarchy um, because we understand that people are evil, that people are broken. And so I'm saying to young people, yes, I see your like want for equality. I see your want to deliver the broken. I see your want to relieve poverty and to relieve um, oppression. And I agree. I'm with you. Yes and amen. But your method is all wrong. Because, because you can't fix this without the gospel. You can't, that you just put someone else in power and all you've done is taken another evil heart and put it on a throne and said, now this evil heart's gonna fix the mess. And the problem is only Jesus can fix the mess, man. The coming kingdom will fix the mess. And so somehow we want to affirm these young people and say, yes, all of your values, they're gospel values, but your methodology is entirely wrong. So come back to the gospel, preach Jesus, and then watch people be transformed, not by outward means, but by inward means. Remember, Jesus says, it's not what you put in your mouth that makes you evil. It's what comes out of your mouth. And so we can't fix this mess just by bandaging things up. We need heart transformation. Jesus saying to uh, Nicodemus, you must be born again. And so because our diagnosis is that we are profoundly broken, and uh, the biggest problem is that we are spiritually dead because we are spiritually separated from God, then our solution becomes you can now be spiritually reunited with God because there was blood that was shed for your forgiveness. And what we learn from God is that God actually loves a broken and contrite heart. That if we would encourage people to stop running, and stop hiding, I understand. I understand what it's like to live in crap, man, for your life to be messy. But the gospel says you don't have to try to hide your crap and your mess. You can own it before God. And God loves the broken and contrite. And God would offer you forgiveness and God would bring restitution, and God would bring redemption. And the other worldview question is, how could a good God allow evil is answered here? God is not the cause of evil. He's the one who's actively working to fix it. He's actively committed to us. So look at Genesis 3.21. This is what most scholars believe to be a prophetic declaration, um, again, as well as a historical statement. 321, 
And the Lord God made for Adam and his wife garments of skin and clothed them. So Adam and Eve tried to build fig leaves, little outfits. I'm sure they looked great. They tried to build them to cover themselves. And then God says, no, that's not going to fix this problem. And God apparently kills some kind of animal. Most scholars will say it's probably a sheep. He kills some kind of animal and God makes for them clothes out of animal skin. So already in Genesis, we see blood being shed and God being the one who provides the atonement. You can't cover yourselves. I'll cover it for you. So the gospel already in play. So Romans 5.18 says that, Therefore, as one trespass led to the condemnation for all men, meaning that when Adam fell, we were all condemned. We all fell in that federal headship. We all experienced condemnation. So one act of righteousness also leads to justification and life for all men. That Adam is the old man and Christ is the new man. In Adam, there is fall. In Christ, there is redemption. In Adam, there is brokenness. But in Christ, there is healing and wholeness. In Adam, we have the need to hide. But in Christ, we have the ability to stand before God, own our mess, and receive redemption. The good news begins with the utterly astonishing fact that God didn't just walk out on Adam and Eve. That God didn't just quit. Like how easy would it have been to wash your hands, to do the pilot thing, bring me some water, wash your hands, and walk away. But God, again, we're going to have to talk about this like over and over. Rather than just walking away, God in the second person, Jesus, actually becomes man and experiences the filth that we created doesn't walk out on humanity. He begins the process of salvation. Already we see prophetic pictures of redemption coming. So what I want to say is this, in conclusion, that was the conclusion, but in conclusion to the conclusion, that's the thing. I just taught it to you. Be educated. Um, If we're going to be a people who rightly understand the gospel, again, vote, man. I'm not saying don't vote. Politics are a means to express our voice. I am saying that I can't vote out. I can't separate my worldview from my voting. I am saying vote from your your convictions. But what what I am communicating is don't put all your hope into a party. Put your hope in the gospel and vote. Please vote, but don't vote and then not evangelize. Because understand that I'm 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 about if we can change. I'm all for it. if we can change laws on abortion. If we could if we could shift some of those, I'm all for it. But the laws on abortion aren't going to fix people's hearts. It's only the gospel that will fix the heart. And we can we can bandage things. And it's like when you stick your finger into a fountain and you stop the water for a second, it's going to shoot out somewhere else. So vote. I'm I'm with it. But don't don't vote and then think that's the fix. The fix is that you grab the gospel. You live the gospel. You preach the gospel. You experience the gospel. You grab people and you suck them into your world. Make them sit down at a meal with you and encounter real love. Live the gospel. That's, that's the fruit. The kingdom come is the answer. So what I want us to do, what I want, the kind of people I want us to be, is to be a people who are okay with messy. We're okay with people coming in the room without facading all of their mess, without putting on the right clothes and using the right language and giving me all their Christian needs to explain to me how good of a person they are, all the while struggling, like, like really in their heart wrestling with depression, fear, anxiety, sin, sin that grip. I don't want to create a house that says you got to put your makeup on and pretend like you're not struggling even though everyone knows you are. I don't want to be that kind of people. 
So I'm saying we want to be a people that say, come with all of, again, forgive me for this word, but come with all of your crap. Be as honest as you want to be. Come with all of your mess. Our commitment is that we're not going to be judgmental. We're going to hear and we're going to listen. But at the same time, our commitment is we're not going to let you roll around in it. Come with your crap. Let's get out of your crap. Okay? Thank you for listening to this Sunday sermon. Be sure to visit ChristianRenewalHHI.org for more resources.